Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello, welcome to my podcast and my YouTube channel. Today we have another Stability Network leader. I'm so thankful to the Stability Network because they've been sending me some of their leaders and they, they come here and they do what they do, which is to talk about mental illness openly and honestly and share their stories, share their struggles, you know, the kind of diagnosis they had, the kind of treatments they've been through. Some of them have struggled with suicidal ideation. And today we have one of those. We're talking to Bill Clamo. Is that right? Did I say it right? That is correct. Yep. <laughs> it's not Claymo. That's nope. what I didn't know. <laughs> so Bill is going to talk to us today. He's going to share his story. He's going to talk about his history with mental illness and you know everything that he's learned since then, how he's coping with it, different kind of medications that he used, suicidal ideation that he experienced in his teens, right? Is that in his, right. your teens? Yes. Yeah, so thank you, Bill, for being here with us. And thank you for sharing your story. You're welcome. welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your, uh, your history, where you're from, where were you raised, your family? Is that a big family, a small family? A uh, small family. Uh, my parents divorced when I was about three. Um, my mother, my sister, and myself moved here to Boise. Um, when I was six. So I did kindergarten in Oregon and I've done first grade through the rest of my education here in Boise. Mm -hmm. what, what you wrote to me was that your experience with mental illness started in high school. So when you were in your teens, is that it? Is that, do Correct. I remember correctly? Yeah. Correct. Yes. My disruption in sleep patterns probably what was hypomania at the time I just didn't know what it mm -hmm. was and mm -hmm. I just sort of marked it down as hey I'm in you know I'm a teenager things are weird so <laughs> yeah it's good that you mentioned that because we do take for granted when we have these symptoms because everything's a teenage it's a teenage thing right you're isolated. Oh, you're isolated because you're a teenager. You're not sleeping because you're a teenager. You have mood mm -hmm. swings, teenager, right? Exactly. And and you went to college very early on too. Was it 18 that you were 18? Yes. I graduated high school when I was 17, turned 18 over the summer, and then went to college at 18. It was my first time away from the house um, for any length of time. And it did not go all according to plan. Um, the structure that I had in high school, the structure I had in you know, having to get up every day, go to school, went right out the window. Um, I started rapid cycling. Um, I was in several English classes and was an English major. 
And when I would write about it, I would call it mood zooming because I would zoom all the way up and then all the way back down. And I could do that a couple times in a day and it wasn't predictable. And I didn't know that it could be a psychiatric issue. I at hadn't the, been yeah. diagnosed as bipolar. Mm-hmm. At, at the time, you just thought, again, it's just because I'm a teenager or because I'm away from home. Yep. And Yeah. You, you said that it didn't go according to plan. W- what does that mean? I mean, what were the challenges for you? Um, popular media you know, talks about, you know, colleges being you know, the best years of your life. And there's no roadmap when you get there. You know, it's you're sending kids from a regimented, you know, 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., you know, Monday through Friday class schedule to having some classes in the morning, some classes at night. I had been a fairly bright person in my high school, so I didn't really have to study. I had no study skills. That's bad in college. I found that out. You can't do the homework 10 minutes before class. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a media trope that, you know, go to college, you'll have parties, there'll be all this fun stuff. And yeah, you can last on that. And I crashed and burned about two and a half months into it. Wow, two and a half months. And you, you're talking about this and I'm thinking, I often, of course, but this is my, my cultural lenses, right? As a Brazilian in Brazil, we don't have this go to college culture. Actually, we stay. Yeah, we stay. (laughs) But our parents are stuck with us for a long time. (laughs) There is no expectation for us to leave anytime, anytime soon, really. Actually, what happens in Brazil is that you usually leave when you get married, if you get married. Yeah, we stay. We just stay. But anyway, I that of course that gives me another way of looking at this, and I, I see this culture of now it, it's just it's just so abrupt to me. It just seems so abrupt. You're as you said, you have structure. You have your mom and dad to you know help you get this into routines and where gets you mm-hmm. up and sends you to school and helps with helps with school. As you said, I didn't have any skills to study because that's a skill that you develop, right? And then suddenly you are away from home, away from your support system. You don't have your parents to help you out. And of course, I understand. I understand the the logic of independence. It's a way of creating independence, but it's just too abrupt to me. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm I'm just looking from, from an outsider point of view. That, and then you're thrown out many times here. Actually, from what I noticed, is most of the times you go to another state. It's not that you just leave your parents' home and move to another neighborhood. You go to another state, right? So you lose yeah. all these things, all this structure, and you're on your own. So that must be really, really hard. I don't buy into the, into the media culture at all. And I didn't think that I had at the time. Because my sister had gone to university, did not have the same sort of issues I did. I did not definitely have the same sort of issues that she did. You know, it's like she was on the dean's list. You know, she had great study skills. 
because she had studied all through high school. So for her, the transition was more just location rather, you know, than for me, which was the support network was now gone. And I didn't realize how much I had relied on it in the past. Well, that's when being, um, <laughs> it happened in my, in my house, my older sister, she's so, so, so intelligent. She's like you, she never needed really to study much. And I was the one who was kind of average and I had to study a lot and I had to learn all these skills. So I totally get what you're saying. It does prepare you, right? When you go to it college, does. Cause it's totally different. Yeah. Was that, was it during college that you started really uh, realizing that there was something wrong? That's when the suicidal ideation happened, started creeping. You actually were, I think you used the word creeping in. There wasn't any specific trigger. And it's one of those things that suicidal ideation isn't standard and you don't know what to look for. And that's where it's dangerous. And if you don't have a support system around you, that it can get out of control, like it did in my situation where I actually attempted suicide. But I mean, that's the thing is you don't wake up one morning saying, I shall attempt suicide today. It is more of just sort of a darkening of the contrast of your life where everything starts becoming more black than white, more dark than, you know, light. You don't see the happy, shiny things. You focus on the negative. And so for me, I, this was in the eighties and I had never been to therapy. I had never been to counseling. I didn't know anything about therapy or counseling, so I didn't know to reach out and so it ended up with the culmination of my suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, that they were quite rude at the hospital, the staff. They're not, I think you said something like, they're not very friendly when you come into the hospital and you tried you know, to end your life. How was that, how was that for you? Um, it was an awakening for how serious that it really was because to me, it was something that I had done. I had failed that I was still framing it in negative terms by seeing the links they went to, by seeing the stark reality behind their responses. Um, it caused me to kind of reframe and how I was seeing it. So, I don't hold any animosity against them for that. And I can't imagine being a medical provider in such a situation because you're saving someone who a brief period of time ago did not wish to be saved. So it's odd in that it seemed abrupt. It seemed uncaring. But looking back, they did what they needed to do. And 30 years later, more than 30 years, I can say that obviously what they did stuck with mm -hmm. me because I'm still here. I had no other serious attempts. I did stupid things, but everyone does when they're young. So, mm -hmm. 
How did your family react at the time? You said that your mom was the one who came to pick you up, right? Yes. My mother, like I said, my mother and father were divorced when I was three. So I never really had a relationship with my father. So my mother flew up to the university I was at. And when they let me out of the hospital three days later, she was the one that took me home. And she was the one that set everything up with a psychiatrist for the counseling and which I found out later was a requirement for being released was that she get something mm-hmm. set up within a week. Mm-hmm. And did you, did you start then therapy and how was that? How was that therapy for you? Did you, was it something that really taught you something that helped you look into yourself and why you done what you did and how was that for you? It was rough at first because I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. I hadn't spoken about that sort of thing with anybody. Um, At the time, the psychiatrist I was going to, she also provided um, the cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy as well as the medicine management. So I started seeing her three days a week, which... I, 10 years down the road, found that, wow, that's a lot more than a lot of people go. But I don't know how valuable it was the first couple weeks, because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how and what I needed to give to the counseling and to the therapy to get things to that I could use out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also talked about negative expectations, uh, and especially regarding your work. You were afraid to speak up because you thought, well, if I do, maybe this is going to affect my career and maybe I'll never get promoted. And it was actually not really true. And it just speaks of, of how we, and of course, there is a stigma. We can't deny there is a stigma with mental illness. But this idea that we always expect the worst, right? And so, exactly. Yeah. So, what happened with that? How was it for you, the experience of sharing and opening up? Did you talk to your boss first or your colleagues first? How did that happen at work? So, I've been with the same company for over 20 years. After a month or two there, I let the person that was training me know. Um, that I was bipolar and what sort of things that she might be able to notice that if she could give me a heads up on, I could adjust my medication a little bit. And after about five or six years, probably a dozen people knew, I always tried to keep my supervisor in on the loop because if you call in sick, you know, you have to talk to your supervisor. So I told them that there are going to be days where I call in depressed. And that's what I do is I don't, you know, couch it after about five years there and make up some sort of got a 24 hour stomach bug or, you know, I've got a bit of a cold. I better not come in. You know, now it's, you know, I'm sorry, I can't make it in, but, you know, really too depressed to function. So we started at my workplace, a volunteer group. 
and I'm the chair of that. And so May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And so the first May, it, I sort of called dibs on to say that I wanted to pick the charity for it. And, you know, we would get up in front of the company, our all staff meetings, and let them know what charity we were collecting for and, you know, how this impacts. And that was about three years ago. Yeah, I couched it with several of you already know, but for those that don't, you know, I'm bipolar. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I've either just shot myself in the foot and I'm not going anywhere after this. I didn't figure after 20 years with a few people knowing that I was going to be fired, but wasn't sure because a lot of people aren't necessarily comfortable around mm-hmm. people that have the have a mental health condition because mm-hmm. it's that stigma that we're trying to get rid of. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And that's what this the stability network does and does so well. And I'm sure that's a very powerful thing. Have you had the experience at work? And I mean, you say I'm bipolar and people will come to you after after mm-hmm. you talk. So, yeah, I'm sure that happens a lot, right? Because all you need to do is open that door a little bit and people will just kind of slowly come in yeah and they would come in about you know and talk to me about family members or they have a family member that and because I was the chair of the charity group I had more resources that I could give them I could refer them to the suicide prevention hotline I could refer them to various groups that had sliding scales for counseling and therapy you know depending on the you know income scale and so, you know, having that was as helpful, if not more helpful to me and being able to help people out and getting rid of the stigma than just standing up in front of everyone and saying it. But I had to stand up in front of everyone and say it to get to that point. So, it- mm-hmm. yeah, well, Bill, uh, maybe I should have started with this, but I'll, I'll ask now you say I'm bipolar. What does that mean to you? Because we have, you know, we, we have the DSM, we have the list of symptoms if you Google it, but it expresses itself differently for everyone. So what does that mean to you? So I, the diagnosis is I am bipolar type one with rapid cycling. What that means to me is that if, if I don't maintain my sleep schedule, if I don't maintain my medications, any counseling, if I happen to be going through a rough patch, that my mood can degrade rapidly. I don't, as rapid cycling, tend to hit the real high manic stages to, you know, where I think I can do everything and the best of everything, but I do get up there to where I take on more stuff than I really should. And that makes it tricky because then you have to walk it back when your mood comes back down to normal. Um, I tend to not get really depressed, um, refer to it more as flat, not fluffy. Um, And if I get really depressed and I do 
typically I've got a week or two each year that I'm not functioning and probably much more than 60 or 70%, but it happens regularly enough that I can supplement my medications with a small amount of an antidepressant and boost it up. But that's 30 years of experience to get to this point. And that's the thing is you have to put in the work and want to be stable and want to be, you know, functional. And that's, that's the toughest part for me is getting past that stigma for some people because they think, ah, oh, mental health. Yeah. Take a pill, right? That's easy exactly. to solve. Yeah. And it's not, and, and it makes a lot of sense what you said. And mental illness is something to live with. Mm-hmm. Hardly ever will you get rid of it, right? Yeah. It's not getting rid of something, but learning how to manage, learning what your triggers are, learning what brings it up or helps um, tame it down a little bit. Because you, you, with time, as you said, 30 years, you know, you know the medication, how you need to supplement it, but you know your healthy habits that you need to, to have every day maintain those routines that are so important, the structure, but it takes time and, and it does take well, doesn't it? it? It does take a moment of decision and say, I am going to take care of myself. Do you exactly. remember when that moment was for you? Or was it something that was built up over time? How did it happen for you? Um, probably it didn't completely sink in to me until I was about 24. So I'd been going to various therapists, various um, psychiatrists, because some moved out of the areas, some moved into the areas, tried a couple of different um, types of therapy. And at about 24, I had a doctor that I was referred to because I hadn't been able to work for a bit thinking that um, it might be best if I went to an inpatient hospitalization. And to me, that was really not anything I wanted to contemplate. And that was my, okay, I'm going to do everything within my power to get level to keep functional to work you know so to that maintain you, you a don't life. have a, yeah so did you don't have a, have to go through this again was that it exactly yeah and i mean i've had a couple of patches where i took like two weeks off work you know because i needed to do a little bit more intensive counseling but i haven't ended up being hospitalized so you also mentioned, and I think it was in, within the context of work, but you mentioned that friends, I have friends because you really came out and you talked to your friends and you talk at work and you are part of the stability network, but you have friends who tell you, who actually come to you and say, listen, you're kind of off. Mm-hmm. So that's a great thing. That's a great thing because it shows how how important the support network is and how they can be your allies, right? Exactly, because people will notice your mood being different 
at, at least in my case, faster than I notice that my mood is different. They'll be able to tell from my voice on the phone if I'm, and I like to use the term poking people with sticks, more than I need to for customer service type things. And so it's like, okay, if I'm, you know, getting a little bit hyper, if I'm getting a little bit aggressive, yeah, I need to know that. So I know what I can dial it back and how I can dial it back. What, what else uh, can you tell our listeners who are themselves struggling with mental illness? Maybe they haven't started this healing process, but things that you learned about yourself that maybe they can relate to. And one of the things you said was that you have a hard time saying no. So that's something I'm sure that's a lifetime battle right? Learning how to yeah. say no. But what, what are the other things that you learned about yourself within these years? That counseling and talking about yourself is hard. Hmm. There's not a laugh track like there is on a sitcom with it when you're leaning back on a couch. To get stuff out of therapy, you have to be willing to put stuff into therapy. And you may not click with your first counselor. You may not click with your second counselor. You will find someone that or you third. click with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the, I have some stories there. I have some stories, but cool. <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing is you have to find someone that you click with that you trust enough that you can talk to about the ugly parts of you that you're still trying to figure out. Because just because you see them as ugly doesn't mean they really are ugly your perception is just potentially off i know i still have some issues that i'm working through in things like that that are a matter of my self-perception that i know i need to address mm -hmm. so i mean none of us are perfect we're all human and i mean it's it takes work but you have to want to do it yeah. Has it affected your relationships, all this learning and self-awareness? I would like to say for the better. I've been married for 27 years come wow. next month. So I was going to say she's probably one of the best gauges as to whether my mood is. <laughs> I'm know. sure. I'm sure she knows. <laughs> I'm sure she looks at you and goes, hey, medication. <laughs> exactly <laughs> well Bill thank you so much for sharing your story and for coming here I know that we were talking before I started recording you were a little bit nervous which is natural because this is new for you but you it is great. yeah it is you 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 get better with time Thank you so much for coming and for, for being part of the Stability Network. And thank you to them for sending all these wonderful guests to my show. Thank you and have a good day. You too. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.